So I have no notes. I'm coming to you kind of raw and exposed because I have just some things in my mind I want to talk about, but nothing in detail. So we'll see how this goes. And if I fall short, please don't laugh. So in uh, the group this afternoon, but in other uh, interviews as well, uh, I've heard the sense that some people, and more than one, basically are numb and over in what I'm saying. There's a sense of just being numb. numb, not understanding what the numbness is, but just like just just feeling um, unable to let something in. And numbness, numbness is a not as a wonderful defense to keep, you know, things at bay. Uh, when when there's something that I really don't want to hear, that is my defense of choice. I just don't hear it. I just numb it, numb it out, right? So, what is happening there? And also, some of you have expressed um, various forms of fear from what I'm saying, you know, that it's like frightens you. And even to the point where some of the Seattle Insight people who come on our Tuesdays, because the series I'm doing is very much in line with this weekend, a lot of emptiness, <clears throat> say that they leave there shaking. They just, they leave, their, they leave the Tuesday night shaking and they find themselves you know, in a Whole Foods grocery store, kind of consuming. <laughs> so what what is going on? <laughs> right? I mean, that's a fair question, for God's sake, because I don't want an obese sangha. <laughs> What's going on there? And, um, you know, it's a... I think some of us feel what I'm saying is basically true. I think you'll give me that. But and you, it's a little bit like taking cod liver oil. You know, it's, I know it's good for me, but I'm close to vomiting here. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so we need to make this palatable. We need, we need to understand that our defenses are... There's two things. One is the readiness to hear. And each of us have a readiness to listen to the Dharma at extended, wherever it might be, uh, outlaid. And many of us have encircled the Dharma in a way that has been very easy for us. Yes, it's asked us to love and to be self-loving um, and to, you know, to be kind and to be equanimous and things within our reach, right? A little cultivation, a little samadhi, a little practice, a little mental maneuvering. Usually we can bring these things to bear in our life. And so it's felt very much in reach. But the Dharma isn't in reach. That's the truth. It's not within reach. So how are we 
to prepare ourselves for something that's unreachable. None of you can do it. Every one of you will fail. Now, I wonder how you heard that. Some of you said, well, I knew that all along. (laughs) But that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you, you, the sense of you cannot do it. Cannot be done. And so meditation is coming up with ultimately utter frustration. Despair in some cases. We have to reach the fact that we can't do it. And fail miserably. But if we keep it within reach, within adaptation, within cultivation, well then we can bring in, well I just haven't spent enough time doing it. And so, if I just keep at it, I haven't failed. And I've also allowed my sense of self-failure to have time, which it loves, because it doesn't feel ready now, and so I'll give it more time. And self-doubt, self, the sense of inadequacy, loves time, because it doesn't feel, it never feels prepared for what it needs to do, so there must be more time in order to, for that preparation to occur. Then it'll happen. Then I'll be ready. But it never comes. We just keep adapting, shifting, changing. I'm not saying that's a fault. I'm just saying that it's not the whole story. In fact, it's not even a partial story. It builds good character. And there is a place in Buddhism for character. There's no question. It provides safety Good character development provides safety for those who you interact with. And so I think Buddha talked so much about character so that he would develop a sangha of a a lineage of people who are moving in good character, developing good character so that uh, they would provide safety for others and themselves to grow within. So that's fair. I, I think he was looking at the long longevity of the teaching and what was needed. But character developed isn't sufficient. It's not enough. Good character is still encrusted with ignorance. And you don't have to focus on good character for good character to develop. You just, if you focus in on the basic teaching of interconnectedness, interconnectedness as it becomes more and more true within one's life brings good character. Brings an orientation of non-harm. It just does. And so it's not so important. It's a byproduct. It'll go on its own. And this, the, so what is it that allows us to be ready? Readiness to hear. 
What is that, you see? Well, one um, limitation of our readiness is how much uh, psychological pain we're in. If there's a lot of psychological pain, if there's a lot of unfinished psychological areas in us, when we hear Dharma spoken in terms of selflessness, it's, we, that's where we're going to trip. We're going to trip at those places where we are in most discord with ourselves. And we're going to be most fearful around uh, where we feel least qualified in our own sense of being. And so this whole thing kind of moves together, you see. It's not as if we work the right hand of emptiness and then we move the left hand of psychological health, that those two hands move simultaneously. So it's not as if we have to be completely psychologically healthy in order to ask, uh, to interface and to understand some forms of emptiness. But if one runs too far ahead of the other, then we'll trip. And so if we are feeling... Uh, disturbed in some way about what it is. Just let us look at what it is that we're clinging on. The disturbance comes because it's showing us or revealing an area in which we are deeply identified. Deeply infusing our um, identification with it. And it doesn't mean we have to resolve this thing in completion to move forward, but we have to start working with it and, and, and seeing the painful issues that are back there. Feeling what keeps me um, hovering around myself because pain issues are the assumptions of self that have never been tested. They are the areas that hold the deepest assumptions about we, about each of us that we believe in. We actually believe them. They are certainties of self. And the reason that they're certainties is because we have never tested their assumptions. We have been acting from their, their assumptions, not looking at the assumptions. And though, and once we start reacting to those assumptions, the assumptions themselves remain unconscious. They are just, they are what we assume to be true and from the assumption of truth we move forward. When we circle back in, when we start seeing how our life has been out of balance from these assumptions, we turn back inside. Let me just give you a very quick example of judgment. Mostly, when I was growing dharmically up, my teachers told me just to notice when I was judging. Judging, 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 judging. I spent a number of years just 
noticing when I was judging. Did nothing to the judgment. I was as judgmental on day one as I was on day whatever it was, 2000. What dawned on me is that the judgment was based on something, that it was a symptom and not the disease. So then when I had the courage, perhaps the readiness, to look at what those assumptions were that the judgment was based on, I saw that the reason I judged somebody, like a teeter-totter, was to lower their head so my so I could be elevated in my assumption of them. And therefore it gave me a momentary relief of the pain I felt from my own self-judgment. So when I saw that judgment did not arrest itself barely by making the act of judgment conscious, I knew that I had to see the assumptions on which that judgment was based. What was I saying to myself in the moment of judging? It wasn't conceptual. It wasn't some idea, some intellectual idea. I could feel emotionally what I was saying to myself as I was judging. I was feeling bad. And when I looked at what I was feeling bad was based upon, it was based upon the imprints of my youth my conditioning, various forms and senses of inadequacy. Now, this is where I want to show us that working with our pain and emptiness go side by side. Because, yes, you can have moments, leap forward, have moments in which judgment is in abeyance and you begin to have an opening into emptiness and not really having worked with those assumptions. And when you have those openings into emptiness, um, it's it's a partial opening because what folds in around it very quickly is the residue of where I haven't worked. The sense of self may have a partial opening, but it's only partial because it carries with it the assumption of self because the sense of self is carried within the assumptions of our pain. So yes, we can move ahead a certain degree, But it's eclipsed. It's like when you see a solar, a lunar eclipse, the aura of the sun is still shining around the blockage of the moon. You see? You saw emptiness, the aura of the sun, but it's still being blocked by the basic assumptions of who and what we think we are. So then, when we see that, then we look at the assumption of In this case, just as an example, I'm using judgment. And we see that the judgment has, in its core, a sense of insufficiency. I don't feel good about myself, so that that makes me feel emotionally um, limited, or like a, a walking mistake. And when I feel that way, instead of living in the world as a mistake, I see other people who are a greater mistake than I am. And the teeter-totter then swings forward and says, well, they're worse off than I am. I look out at you. <laughs> I'm joking. But get a sense of what this... Okay. Now that is maybe all the relief we want is just for a moment. It is psychologically because we wouldn't keep judging. But at some point it's not sufficient to live in pain at someone else's expense. 
So we look at the hard truth of what we tell ourselves moment after moment. We invest in ourselves as our basic sense of self-truth. And each of us have core issues that we have lived out, that we are living out. And they often affect our actions of body, speech, and mind. And those core truths have very firm, and in fact, when you get close to them, they seem insurmountable. Most people, when they get close to these core truths, say, this is big. And it feels like a huge elephant. It seems formidable, so formidable, I can't do it. That's the first thing that comes. I can't do it. I love that one because it shows that they're actually exposing themselves to the depth of the pain in that moment. And it's because I can't do it is absolutely a fact to them. And they will then go off and play out and react from that fact rather than ever to expose themselves to that fact again. Unless they have another pair of eyes that knows that that's an assumption and not a fact. And those pair of eyes hold the absolute knowledge that this is just psychic play. And perhaps that incites enough courage within that person to go back for the next round because it often takes repeated rounds of exposure to these deep level of embedded pain for that assumption to be, whether it's ever completely absent, but it becomes like a faint voice, something remembered, like a radio that starts off next to your ear and then is a uh, hundred yards away. And you pay attention to it no matter how far away it is. Now, if we go too fast, too quickly, we can have a partial opening, but be encrusted in our pain. And then it's really ugly. Because the opening can be sufficient so that there's confidence with what we see. Nobody can tell me I don't know what I see. But the aura is now of arrogance. So you know what's best for others. And you're willing to tell them. Although if it has a smug spiritual flavor, you'll hold it within a sense of demure, but still you inside you'll know what's best for them. And that arrogance comes to play because it's not challenged. Because behind that arrogance is the residue of the pain we never wanted to look for in the first place. And the teaching can get ugly. And so, spiritual humility is the willingness to take this thing to end suffering, not to a level of tolerant suffering where there's any rub. And that means cleaning up the residue.
so that it becomes like an echo rather than an absolute fact. It starts out, the assumption starts out as an absolute fact, and then it becomes like an echo. And I'll explain exactly how this works. If you're way back in a cave, the echo is all around us. I mean, you shout and it's coming off of every wall. Almost deafening. But as we walk towards the mouth of the cave, the sound gets quieter. And we're walking, metaphorically, towards now. The mouth of the cave being now. And as we get to the very mouth of the cave itself, which means that we're willing and more and more willing to embrace the sounds that are still there, but the sounds don't hold the conviction. And so we are not often running at the first sound of inadequacy, playing it out in some kind of character formation or some kind of action, unskillful action. We are willing to sit and, that's all right, let the bats fly out. At the mouth of the cave is the mouth of now. The mouth of now, the bats still fly, but it's open, it's open space. It doesn't reform around a conviction. And in now, see this is bringing the emptiness and the selfing together. At the mouth of the cave, in now, in this moment, it's, we realize that everything that's coming from the backward part of the cave out is from the past. We know that because all thought is from the past. And nothing holds this conviction except the thoughts I hold about myself, which is the past conditioning that I'm, that's coming forward from the back end of the cave from the earlier, my earlier years. But it's not reforming itself because it, it comes out and flies off rather than just circles around into greater echoes, flapping their wings and creating more havoc. From the mouth of the cave, they fly off like this. Another metaphor, just to change metaphors, it's like on a waterfall, the water, and then all of a sudden it just dies straight down off the cliff. You can't talk yourself out of your neuroses. You can't convince the part of you that doesn't feel loved, that craves other people loving me, if that happens to be our tendency, no matter how much love you get, doesn't fill that cavity. Because the cavity holds the assumption that I'm not lovable. And if you love me, it means I fooled you sufficiently so that you think I am. And it doesn't change my opinion of myself one bit. And so much of us lean forward in life trying to get, regain the balance that we feel in our own self-diminishment by having life compensate for that, but it can't compensate for that because the belief that life is this way in me holds us fast to that.
Only now is our salvation. Why? Because, and this is where wakefulness and neurosis, yes, we walked quite a ways on this path with both of those things, each moving in accordance, lockstep with one another. And may I say that none of you have made a mistake and haven't done enough of that. I mean, you're all moving them both, as far as I can tell in this room. But some of you are lagging a little behind and the need to bring these two things closer within step of each other. And if you get too far out there again, we begin to trip. Even though we may have enormous insights and just wonderful feeling, which does affect our ability to, when you have those insights, it does allow us more courage to and conviction of the now. It gives us more confidence in now. So those insights don't go without some creditation and being able to alleviate the pain of our neuroses, but they don't alleviate the pain of our neuroses until we bring that pain to the mouth of the cave. Do you see what I'm saying? And so much of us get, so many of us, where we get numbed over is that we won't bring the courage to face those voices in us. We know they're there. We've lived with them for perhaps years. We've known they're there. We've been conscious of them. But putting it into action, embodying it in spirit and actually making a courageous statement that this is, I'm going forward, I'm going forward with this thing and I'm going to do whatever is necessary. It's intentionality again. I'm going forward and end this. Now, why is somebody ready to do that and someone not? I don't know. I don't know. I have strength of heart. I don't know. I think it's bottoming out. My guess is that it's like alcoholism. That any pain we have to it has to become so unbearable, and we have lived with such in such uh, in such labor and burden of it that at some point we don't give a damn what anyone thinks of us. We're coming out. We don't care whether we get shattered like a wine glass against the rocks. We're coming out. Because I can't, I can't do, I can't live like this. And I think we get fed up to the point where that's it. I'm walking out. Some of us, we have to find out whether we're fed up enough. Have we reached the point where our pain has taken us as far as it can take us? Are we still? See, at some point we can get so identified with the symptoms of the pain that they're the only self we know. And so I'm very loath to give up the only self I know, even if it's a painful one. So, yes, my depression is awful, but what do I do in the evening? I go home, I turn on sad music, I close the blinds down, lights are low, and I just feel miserable.
We're not, we haven't bottomed out yet, have we? For some of us. So that readiness has to do with how in touch, first of all, are we of the pain? How fed up are we of the pain? How have, have we reached the limits of our endurance of it? Where we just, this is just, I can't do. And then we're called not just to know that we're at the limits, but to call into action, embodied action to live in a different way. Perhaps as hard as it is to first hear the pain, the second most difficult thing is to actually make a statement, an action statement, counter to the pain. I'll talk more about that tomorrow. So what gets awakened? You see? Pain is where we have contracted around the certainty of me. And awakening is awakening to those areas of contraction. And some of them are very minor, like wanting this and not wanting that. Some of them are very entrenched psychological difficulties, as I just spoke about. There's a whole range of them. Each one holds a particular confiscated attention that I have given something at the expense of something else. And so whenever we give undue weight, I'm formed. And much of this we can kind of work our way through pretty easily, although I say that and still a jet plane will fly over here and everybody will cringe. Or somebody will start sneezing in the hall and there'll be this kind of, I could see a wiggle in your, like, why doesn't he shut up? (laughs) What have we been doing all these years? If we can't even address the small ones, the areas of discord, of irritation, of annoyance, where have we really come? How far have we really come? When the same things still bug us 20 years into it. When is this thing going to take hold? That what, what is the cause of pain? And am I applying myself towards the release, the surrender that's necessary? See, the problem is that as long as we think we're a self, surrender is incomplete. It's called begrudgment. Annoyed begrudgment. Resignation. hunkering down and waiting it out. Because the self doesn't know how to surrender. It's incompatible with the sense of self. So as long as we carry ourselves through, these minor irritations continue to play on our field. And we know the theories, right? We've got all four noble truths down. Intellectually, we've got it all down, except we're still annoyed with little things, you know, like, damn, it's raining. I'm getting old. 
So freedom from even the small things comes in piercing a hole in the big thing, the sense of me. And that's why I can't stop talking about it. Because I'm not interested in adaptation in Buddhism. I'm interested in eliminating the pain. To know how thought, our relationship to thought, forms ourself again and again and again. To see the relationship between the sense of me and wanting and my wanting. You see, we can't just say, oh, desire. You know, we whitewash this thing. We've got to know what desire is. What is it in its essence? What is it in its word formation? Where does it send the mind? How does it create an alternative reality? Because this is desire. Yeah, desire causes suffering. Right, good. Now, if you just shut up, I... (laughs) Let's pick this thing apart. We have to do the work that's necessary. We have to be interested sufficiently, bottomed out sufficiently, to say that enough of this madness... Now, there's an emotional residue that once we have seen the limitation of thought, we have figured out what the desire is, an intimation of future expectations over present circumstances, and that to give myself in flight to anticipation is to rob myself of the presence here and now. So we've seen all that. Still, there's emotional residues. Remember those faint callings? Yes, we have brought them to the point where we can be free enough so that they are very distant to us. But if we become unconscious to them, they start forming themselves closer and closer within the aura of that eclipse. And then we see the display where we have... Where we've stopped working, there is a, this is a free fall. What awakening is, is not an arresting point. It is a free fall. We are constantly in free fall. Awareness doesn't say, okay, well, I've done it. Good job. Now, let me put my feet up on the coffee table. This is free fall. And we can get very arrogant around what we have obtained And that closes us off to the sounds of those ancient voices, our arrogance. And therefore we are, they build in volume until a crescendo. And there's a smugness. If you you talk to somebody of this character, it's like bumper cars. Inside, you know, you know, everything is like, but you should be. This is what about, you know, it's like tailgating you. Or the arrogance can be so assimilated into the spiritual development. See, there are all kinds of ways it can reconfigure. 
innocence. We have to be innocent once more. We have to be willing. Okay, let me look at this. Damn, I thought I was over this. You're not over this. We're never over it. One moment of lapsed attention, that sound all of a sudden becomes decibel strong. There's never a time when we can become unconscious again. That's another way of saying it. What we have done now is to make the unconscious conscious. Sorry, Freud. It can be done. And everywhere we're unconscious still has its play. So we just, with quietude, we look. And awareness is always one percentage point more subtle than the sound it's listening to. No matter how subtle the sound, no matter how ensconced the unconscious, awareness is always there to receive it. If we wish it to be, if we have the intention to see it. And the only energy now that plays forth is our intention. Not because the sense of self is the embodiment of unconscious. We can't go Stockton, our unconscious, with our unconscious self. Come on out. Doesn't happen that way. We think we can, but we don't even realize what we are. That's the epitome and definition of unconsciousness. And that's why I say that we're all doomed to failure. Because at some point we have to see that what we think we are is the play of the unconscious. And we have to turn to it too. And if we are thinking about assumptions that are deeply based, you look at the assumptions of I. Everything else is like child's play. You look at the root system of the sense of me. And the sense of self likes nothing better since it's unconscious than to be hot on its tail because it knows it can escape the difficulty because it's unconscious. I don't really have to look. I just have to work hard. Are you having fun? <laughs> this is actually a lot of fun. If you get into it in the right way, in the right orientation, don't... Oh, God. Have I, no. It's <laughs> so at some point, we have to understand that the effort the sense of me puts forward is doomed to failure. Because the effort itself is an extension of the unconscious. It's trying to do something not knowing what it's even doing. And once then the root of I is seen, 
There's no one there left to be seeing it. Have you noticed how much the watcher still exists within meditation? That's the unconscious part, the sense of me taking up a posture. If you looked at it and listened to it, you would hear subtle thoughts, opinions about what it is that you saw. And those opinions form themselves into a sense of position to what you see. And when we're listened to, all they are is opinions. There's nothing there. Because we're unconscious to the opinions, we believe in the opinions, and therefore our awareness becomes distorted through the opinions. You can see how important this is. I hope. I hope I don't send you back into numbness. Start where we are. Just start where we are. Just be willing to start where we are. You know I'm in pain here. Just look. Just look. Just say, okay, let me look. Let me see it. Let me, let me hold it. Let me caress it with caring attention, not with... Malevolence. Because everything, remember that the watcher, that sense of me and how I watch, has the unconscious component within it. How I watch will then incite further unconsciousness with what I watch. Through my opinions, I won't be able to see what I'm looking at free of my judgment. And so they will be covered with my judgment, never knowing that they have the judgment is arising, and all I will see is my, ref, my own face reflected back. So that's why the best we can do is to bring caring attention to bear. Because at least with caring attention, the orientation is to receive it rather than to judge it. That's why we start this practice with love. I don't care if it's just one cell in your body. It's like yeast. Once it has a foothold, it will start spreading. If we, so wherever there can be self-love. But don't let the self, let it spread like a complete yeast infection. <laughs> Maybe that's the wrong We're just helping each other out here on the road. And sometimes we have to throw bricks because it is so, what's there is so smug and so unable to hear. And sometimes we throw flowers 
because everyone feels the softness of the touch of a breeze. So I end with my wish for all of you is to just look and see where you are. Just be willing to see where you are now. Without idealizing the path, without obscuring the present, just see softly Gently what's here. And that will move everything forward. Thank you all.